turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. We're continuing working our way through the epistle of 1 John there toward the back of your Bible. 1 John, we've finished chapter 1 and now we're coming into to chapter 2. We're continuing to talk about sin and, and God's, uh, God's plan for our right response to sin and our wrong response to sin exposed. So uh, what we're going to do, we're looking at verses 1 and 2 this morning of 1 John 2, but what I'm going to do is, is I read it, I'm going to begin earlier in chapter 1 and verse 5 and just kind of read through the, the wrong understanding of sin and, and then let, let, kind of lead into our right understanding of how our sin is dealt with in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. So if you're able to this morning, if you'd stand with me in honor of God as we, we look at his word together, 1 John uh, chapter 1 beginning of chapter 1, verse 5, and we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 this morning. Here's what John writes. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You may be seated. May God encourage and strengthen us through his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for your time of, your your, your blessing on this, this time we have together. We ask that your Holy Spirit would work within our hearts, that he would take the words inspired by you and work your right effect in our lives. I pray for those who are hurting this morning, for those who are hurting physically, who are, are struggling with, with various ailments and, and just uh, re- recovering from thing or things or getting ready to go into the midst of, of a tough time. I would ask your, your blessing upon them, give them your encouragement. For those who are hurting emotionally or spiritually, Give them a special grace. Pray for me that you'd help me to to communicate clearly this morning your truth and that it would change our lives. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Let me share a little bit about my week this past week and and see if this, this resonates with you, if you can identify with some of the things that I've kind of struggled with this this past week. A week ago, Saturday, we got back from South Africa, and so we, we came and kind of jumped right into things on Sunday and Monday, and and pretty quickly, I started feeling a little overwhelmed, and uh, I kind of felt like I was in a bit of a, a funk, just just not feeling quite right, a, a little, feel a little discouraged even, would, would be kind of how I felt. Now, I don't think there's anything sinful about being in a funk. I don't think funkiness is sinful. It's the wrong phrase there, but <laughs> I don't think it's wrong to feel like in a little bit of, of a funk. I don't think that's a sinful feeling. But what I did, and if you want, Whitney can corroborate my, my story this morning, uh, I didn't respond to that feeling in the way that I should have. I, I responded at times this past week in a, in a sinful way. That, that feeling that I was feeling. Now, remember what we've said about sin, how we've defined sin. Sin isn't just a bunch of rules that exist in the universe, and, and we have to not disobey those or we're sinning. We've said that sin is tied to God's character. Remember, verse 5 says that, that God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. God is the absolute standard of perfection. Everything about God is good, and and anything in my thoughts or my actions, my words, my imagination, anything that, that deviates from God's absolute 
standard of, of perfection, his character and his laws, any deviation from that is sin. Any time I'm not in exact parallelism with God's character and his will, I'm in sin. And this past week, at times, I was in sin. I wasn't responding to how I, I felt in the right way. And, and then what happened? So here, here's kind of this, this feeling of, of discouragement or funk or whatever, and, and then I respond to that in a sinful way, and then I see how I've responded in a sinful way, and what do I do? I get discouraged, and then when I get discouraged, what I, I feel, I, you know, I, I respond poorly, and so it's, it's this cycle. Now, I'm wondering, do you ever feel that way as you're confronted with the reality of sin? And I'm not really wondering. Uh, if you say you don't, you're a liar. That's not my words. John says you're a liar, okay? John says if you never struggle with how to respond to your sin, you're, you're lying, you're, you're deceiving yourself if you don't say you respond in sinful ways. And so I know you do, and I do. In fact, we've, we've looked at wrong ways to respond to sin in verses 5 through 10 of chapter 1. We've said it's wrong to say, well, it's not a big deal. God doesn't care. It doesn't hurt my relationship with God. We've said it's wrong to say, I'm not really a sinner. We've said that it's wrong when we're confronted with specific acts of sin to say, oh, that isn't really sin. I've been tempted or have done at moments all of those this past week. Oh, this isn't that big of a deal or, or you know, this isn't really sin. It's just kind of not responding rightly. All those things I've done, and I'm guessing that you have struggled with as well. And again, not really guessing because God's Word tells me you have. In fact, in all seriousness, I would imagine there, there are some who are here this morning who are struggling deeply with how to respond to the reality of sin in, in their lives. In fact, when I say sin, you're not thinking of sin in the abstract. There's, there's something in particular that, that you're wrestling with. And when I say sin, you're thinking about, oh, that comment I made. Or when I say sin, you're thinking about that action you did or, or the gossip you spread. Or there, there's something that is, is in your life right now. I'm, I'm struggling with how to respond to, to this. Sin isn't some abstract issue for you. It's It's reality. And there's a question, how, how do I respond to that? As I confront the reality of sin in my life, how do I deal with that? How do I handle that? Well, the good news is John cares about you. He deals with that. And I believe you can kind of sum up what John is saying in, in a single sentence, and it's not that profound. I'm, I'm going to say this sentence, and you're going to go, wow, I've never thought of that before. Daniel, that's amazing. It's simple. It, it, it's, it's just this. When I'm confronted with the reality of sin, I can trust in Jesus Christ to deal with it completely. When I'm confronted with the reality of sin in my life, I can trust in Jesus Christ to deal with it completely, thoroughly, totally, on the basis of his work on the cross. Now, I'm going to give you three statements to ponder and, and meditate on and consider when you are confronted with the reality of sin in your life. So when that, that moment comes and you're confronted with a sin, I'm going to give you three thoughts that I believe are very helpful for us as we struggle with what do I do when I'm confronted with a sin. Here's the first thing. When I'm confronted with the reality of sin in my life, the first thing I need to do is I need to remember I don't want to sin. When I'm confronted with sin in my life, one of the first things I think it's helpful for me to meditate on and think about and consider is, look, I, I don't want to sin. Look at what John writes in the first sentence of chapter 2. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, there's, there's about three things here that, that I find very helpful in this verse. Three things I notice. The, the first thing that I notice is John writes is that he refers to these people as his, his little children. There's this, this familiar relationship that he has with them. And John, as he wrote, he, he could have been kind of domineering. You know, look, I'm, you know who I am? I'm the Apostle John. 
I walked with Jesus. I saw the resurrected Lord. Now I'm going to tell you some things you need to do to shape up. But that's not John here, right? John, John loves the people to whom he's writing. He's writing to these believers in, in Asia Minor, and, and he feels this, his pastoral, his pastoral relationship with them is, is what a pastoral relationship should be. His desire for them is not that they conform to some sort of standard so that, that they're doing what he wants them to do. He loves them. He cares about them. And he says, look, my, my kids, my children, I, I love you, and I want good things to happen to you. That's the right pastoral relationship that should exist between people who are in fellowship together, right? Look, my, my children, I love you guys. Now here's, here's the second thing that I notice here in this verse that is very, very interesting to me. He says, I'm writing these things to you for a reason, so that you may not sin. So that you may not sin. Now, why I find this interesting is that John is assuming that the people to whom he is writing are going to view sin differently than the people who are outside the community of faith. Remember, we've, we've talked about how 1 John is written to people so that they can know, look, am I, am I really part of the community of faith? Am I, have I been persuaded by these false teachers? Am I, am I outside the, the real community of faith? John has said, look, a person who responds to sin in the wrong way is not truly a child of God. And as we go through 1 John, we're going to see that a person who has had their heart transformed by the gospel should respond to sin in certain ways. So, for example, as you go through the rest of chapter 2 even, John would say in verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You come through to the end of chapter 2, he says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure, you can have confidence that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And as we go through 1 John, we're going to see that John believes that a person who's been transformed by the gospel is going to view sin a certain way. And so John, as he says here, um, I'm writing these things to you that may not sin, he has an assumption that they're going to agree with that. I, yeah, I don't want to sin. If I wrote a letter to a person and said, hey, um, I'm writing this to you because I want to help you not be angry anymore. And the person reads that and says, I'm not an angry person. What are you talking about? And rips it up. Then they're not going to respond rightly, right? Or someone writes a letter to me, Daniel, I'm writing this so you won't be so greedy. Wait, what? Gre what you, how do you get off calling me greedy? John understands that the people who are truly part of this community of faith, to whom he's writing, are going to listen to what he's saying, and, and agree with him. Yeah, I, I am a sinner, and I don't want that to be true of me. I think that's a very important first thing to meditate upon when we confront the reality of sin in our life. That moment where we're confronted with this, this sin, we say, I don't want this. This isn't, this is true of my life right now, and I don't want it to be true. The believer comes to this moment in their life when they're confronted with their sin, they say, I, I, I don't want this. This isn't what I want in my core. This isn't who I am. And John, as he writes these things, knows that this statement is going to be effective in the lives of those who are believers. They're going to agree with him. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to sin. Okay, now there's a third thing that I find kind of interesting in this first verse. He's writing pastorally, my little kids. He's writing to people assuming that the people who are believers are going to agree, yeah, I don't want to sin. Now, now here's, here's the question. If they don't want to sin, what, does, what is John doing to help them in that. So he's writing to people, says, I, I don't want you to sin. Now, what's his plan to deal with that sin? He doesn't write, my little children, I don't want you to sin, and so um, I'm, I'm praying that you have a real emotional experience to deal with that tendency you have to sin. He doesn't even say, um, I'm writing to you, and so I'm just praying that 
The Spirit does something to make you stop sinning. What is John's proposal for how they deal or how he's going to help them deal with this the struggle they may have to sin? It says that he's writing something to them. Now, why is that important? He says, my little children, I am writing this to you so that you may not, sh- so that you may not sin. What does writing have to do with anything? Let me suggest to you that sometimes we have a very wrong understanding about how we are to deal with sin, how we're to live the Christian life, how change happens in the Christian life. Sometimes we have this belief that we can have some sort of uh, just, a, just a mystical experience or, or just some sort of emotional moment. And, and this, the, I have this emotional moment, and when I have this emotional moment, it's going to propel me to sanctification. It's going to propel me to Christ-likeness. And, and John doesn't say, look, I, I pray that, that you have some sort of emotional awakening so that you can deal with sin. John says, I'm writing some things because intellectually there are some things you need to grasp in order to deal with sin. If you're going to understand what sin is, you need to know who God is, and you need to understand what deviations from God's character and law and will look like. This is really important, I think, for us to understand. You and I, of course, need the the Spirit's work in our lives, but how does the Holy Spirit work? Well, the Holy Spirit has written Scripture. He's these words are inspired by God. God breathed, and now the Spirit works through His Word in our lives. You know, as as Paul talks about being filled with the Spirit, he says, I pray you're filled with the Spirit so you can know some things. There's, There's an intellectual component to our ability to live the Christian life. When I was in high school, there was a, a situation that I found myself in one time, and there was a uh, a group of people that were going to go out and, and do some sort of activity, and they like person asked, "Hey, do you want to go?" And I said, "Sure." And then I, I slowly started realizing that they were trying to trick me into going into it on, on a double date. You know, so wait, 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 what's going on here? I'm going with who? Who all is going? And I suddenly realized that I was I was being set up on a date. And so I said, "Well, tell me about this person that you're trying to set me up with." And they they started using words and. It, it, was, it was kind of funny to me. Uh, it kind of got me thinking. They, they started using, you know, uh, very, very fun, very outgoing, uh, hilarious. People enjoy it. And I realized sometimes when we use words to describe people, we're using words to either not talk about other aspects of their personality or to, to take negative aspects and turn them positive. We, we all do this, right? Say, man, that person is really intense, what we mean is they're overbearing and kind of annoy us sometimes, you know. Or that person is, is, is so outgoing, that person won't stop talking when you're in a conversation. I mean, there, there's, there's things that we, we use code words to kind of minimize aspects of people's personality. Now, sometimes, whenever we're describing preaching, there's a word that's, there's a couple of words that are sometimes used to describe biblical preaching. Sometimes person, a person will say, yeah, that, that preaching is really intellectual. That, that preaching is really deep. And what they mean is, that's really boring. <laughs> Daniel, your preaching is, is really, uh, it's really intellectual. Are you saying I'm boring? <laughs> no one wants to be boring. I don't, want to be a, I don't want to stand up and bore people. And, and there, there's a balance, I think, because you don't want to, to, to get so into to, to, you know, every, um, all the theological depth that a, that a person coming in has no idea what you're talking about. But at the same time, when, we talk about, when, I, when I think about why am I even standing up here, I'm not standing up here to make you feel good. I'm not standing up here to give you some emotional stories. I'm not standing up here just to be funny. It's a side benefit. <laughs> but you know what humor is? Humor is like this, a, a device, and in biblical preaching, a device where you can get someone laughing while you stab them with the Word of God, right? <laughs> David Wells, David Wells wrote a book 
several books were very influential in, in my thinking, and, and he, he wrote a book, No Place for Truth, is very influential, and then he wrote a follow-up book called The Courage to be Protestant, and he, he wrote some very convicting words, because I'll tell you, you know, whenever someone says some things about my preaching, there is kind of this tendency to, man, do I need to rethink this? What, what am I doing? Am I doing this right? And, and balancing it. He says this about preaching and, and pastors. He says, some pastors have walked away from, uh, purposely, from preaching biblical sermons. And they've done so because they really do not believe that these sermons can actually connect with their postmodern hearers, that they will be understood, that they will do any good. That being the case, a strange bond begins to bind the preacher and at least the more casual in the audience together. The preacher thinks biblical truth simply will not be able to resolve any real need in people's lives. And about this, the people agree, this is not what they've come to hear. They've come for encouragement and inspiration, to be uplifted, to be given some help for their psychological tensions, for all the bafflements of life, or simply to be amused. Preach a biblical sermon, Wells writes, and they will simply want to walk out. And I think in some cases, Wells is right. In fact, I was talking to a friend on, on Friday night, and, and he mentioned that a, a pastor had told him, look, if I, if I preach a biblical sermon, half the congregation will leave. And, and may, maybe he was right in that context. But brothers and sisters, you're not little children, I'm not old enough to call you little children, brothers and sisters, I'm convinced of better things for you. I know you love the Lord, and I, I'm confident that you don't want to sin for those of you who are believers. And so I take you to God's word, and you go to God's word. And, and, and as we're confronted with sin, what's one of the first things we need to realize? Look, I don't want to sin. So what do we do? We ask for God's work in our lives to help us, and we turn to his word so that we can know who he is and know what sin is, and know his grace and what he's done to deal with our sin. The first thing that I think is important for us to meditate upon as we're confronted with the reality of sin in our lives is, I don't want to sin. I don't want to sin. Here's the second thing. Here's the second thing that I think it's important for us to think about when we're confronted with sin. It's this thought. Christ is advocating for me, and he has completely dealt with my sin. Christ is advocating for me, and he has completely dealt with my sin. Look at what we read here in 1 John chapter 2, the end of verse 1, on into verse 2. But if anyone does sin, and so the reality, this, the construction here is, is a, this is going to happen. When, when someone does sin, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins, and we'll go on and talk about the last part in just a moment. Now, what is it saying here? It's saying that I have an advocate, and my advocate is Jesus Christ. And what is an advocate? An advocate is a person who, who intercedes for another person. So let's, let's say, for example, that I've really offended Brock. You know, Brock and I, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm standing here, I'm spitting on him while I'm talking, and he's just had enough of it. Uh, he's, 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 he's through with me, and so he gets really, we kind of get into a really big uh, argument, and he starts shouting things during the sermon and stuff, and I go, man, this is, this is bad, this is not good, and every time I, I go, you know how Brock is, you know, every time I go to him, he doesn't even want to talk to me, so what do I do? Well, I go to Jody, hey, I know you and Brock are pretty close, <laughs> uh, help me out here, put in a good word for me. An advocate is a person, a, a third party who, who advocates to, between two parties. Now, there's a couple things here about Christ being my advocate that I think are very important for us to understand. The first thing is that Christ is my advocate with the Father. You see that? Who is he advocating with? It's with the Father. You say, wait, why is he advocating with the Father? Isn't God love? <laughs> In fact, let me, uh, let me turn back to John, another book that John wrote, John chapter 3, and we'll see why Christ is advocating with the Father. 
John 3.16 tells us, as we all know, that God so loved the world, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, there's a passage that very clearly says, you know, God loves. God's a loving God. But there's also, there's also some dark undertones to that verse, right? What do you mean perish? How would I perish? What's involved in perishing? As we go through chapter 3, we see that the same God who loves the world is also the God in whose, that we're in danger from, that same God, God the Father. It says, Jesus goes on and says, there's judgment coming. This is the judgment that light has come into the world. This is verse 19, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You go down in, to the end of chapter 3. It says, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not Obey the Son, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There's a wrath that you and I are in line of, and it's God the Father's wrath. And so, for the believer, the person who is trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation, the good news is that Christ is advocating with the Father. He's coming before the Father and, 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 and defending us. Now, don't get the wrong idea here. It's not that God the Son likes us, Jesus likes us, and God the Father doesn't like us. They're united in their purpose, but God the Son is, is continually advocating for us. It's, it's not like, it's not like a mom wants to punish the kid and dad doesn't and the mom is trying to plead for the kid. Both of the parents want to bless the kid and mom is saying, look, here's how we can do it. Here's why we can do it. So the first thing that I notice here as I think about how Christ is advocating for me is that he's advocating for me with with the Father. The second thing that I notice, these are building on each other, and this is very important. The second thing I notice is that he is, he's not just an advocate, he's a righteous advocate. Look at the text. It says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the righteous. Now, why is that so important? There's an attorney in Great Britain that I was reading about this last week. His name is Nick Friedman. And my, by the way, my goal is not to, to get on to attorneys here, but Nick Friedman is an attorney in Great Britain, and his nickname is Mr. Loophole. Mr. Loophole. And Nick Friedman has a reputation. He's gotten very wealthy by getting his clients off of, of different charges related to traffic violations. My understanding is that for various traffic violations, you get points against you, and if you get up to, I think it's 11 or 12 points against you, you lose your license for at least six months. And Nick Friedman, Mr. Loophole, has gotten clients off who have 31 points against them. He's helped them retain their license. And he's just known for being a, a person who, who gets clients off with, with all sorts of different violations. He's argued that a person was speeding to escape from the paparazzi. Uh, he had one client who had driven while intoxicated, had gotten himself into a terrible car accident, was in a hospital being operated on, and a, a police officer had come and had, had not wanted to get in the way, and so had, had taken a, uh, a sample of the, the uh, perpetrator's blood, and, and sure enough, they ran a test, and it blew the alcohol limit just off the charts. And, and Nick Friedman, Mr. Loophole, got his client off on the technicality that the wrong person picked up the blood vial off the table and handed it to the police officer. I mean, Mr. Loophole knows the legal laws and ramifications way better than the police officers who are trying to enforce them. Mr. Loophole. Now, is Jesus that kind of advocate? I mean, we're all, we all know we're guilty, right? So is Jesus just like this really good Chicago lawyer? Your Honor, let me uh, talk to you about my client here and, and gets us off of, with, with terrible things. Is that how Jesus Christ operates? No, he's, he's righteous. His advocacy for us is, is not a contrary to righteousness. He's not trying to allow uh, wicked people, or not allowing wickedness to go unresolved, undealt with. So what do we see? 
He's a righteous advocate. He's one whose will is in perfect line with the Father's. In fact, Hebrews chapter 7, we read about Christ's righteousness and his, his interceding for us. In Hebrews 7, verse 25, it says he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For in, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Christ is a perfect high priest, and everything that he does is perfect and is done in righteousness. And so Christ, as he advocates for you and I, isn't advocating as some shyster lawyer trying to get us off on our crimes, but he's a perfectly righteous advocate. And as he stands before the Father advocating for you and advocating for me, he does so in perfect righteousness. How can that possibly be? How can it possibly be just and righteous in any sense of the word for me not to be punished for the things that I have absolutely, certainly done? And that brings us to the most important part of the text, I believe. The most important part of the text, the most difficult word to pronounce, (laughs) it's the idea of propitiation. Christ is advocating for me and has completely dealt with my sin. That means he's advocating for me before the Father. He's doing so in perfect righteousness. And it means that he has completely dealt with my sin. Look at what the text says. John tells us that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. What does that mean? That he is the propitiation for our sins. That word means, there's kind of several components to it. It means the removal of sin, but it also means the the turning away of wrath. One word that I use sometimes instead of propitiation, when I'm just kind of reading through it, is is, is satisfaction, the complete satisfaction for our sins. In other words, our, our sin is completely removed, and the wrath of God that we should rightly experience is is turned away. Listen to a couple other passages that help us get at this idea of propitiation. Romans 3.25, it says that God put forward Christ as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So there was a time whenever people were sinners and, and God had allowed that sin to continue not because he wasn't going to deal with it, but because he was going to deal with it, and he dealt with it in the person of Jesus Christ. And so God's wrath was completely poured out on the person of Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation, the satisfaction. He's the one who turns away God's wrath for, for us. Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. So propitiation here refers both to the cleansing of the sinner and the turning away of God's wrath from the sinner. That's what Christ does. But again, remember this. Let's get the picture right. It's not that God looks at you as a sinner and says, boy, I I hate them, I'm going to pour out my wrath on them. I'm going to get them. God is going to pour out his wrath on unrighteousness. And yet he also loves us. And so he sends Jesus Christ to be the propitiation for our sins. Christ is the one who turns away the wrath of God, but he's also the one who's sent by God. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You and I have a debt that needs to be paid. Whenever we were in South Africa, we, uh, we had a situation where we were in a little bit of a debt. 
we had rented a car and we had driven around the car and the car rental place had allowed us to, to rent and drive around the car and we're going to charge us at the end of our time. And I'd, I'd asked him, I said, you know, I've got this extra currency, the South African currency, the RAND, and, and so whenever I come to the end of our, our time, can I pay someone credit card and someone RAND? Yeah, absolutely, you can do that. So we drive around the car, have fun and stuff. And then we, we come to, to pay for the car and, and uh, there's, there's a problem. Of the, the processing just didn't work quite the right way and they said, you know, we can't, you can either pay uh, all Rand or on a credit card. Now, I have, I have a policy, and my policy is uh, whenever possible, if at all possible, do not argue with someone, period. You know, don't, in a, in a service, in a service situation especially, if I'm, you know, in a grocery store or whatever, and even if I really believe I'm in the right, just, there's no, there's no arguing, there's no, it's not going to be a win for me if, if I argue with a person, berate them into submission, and they find out that I'm a pastor, you know, and, or even just a follower of Christ. You know, congratulations, I won. Uh, fame the name of Christ. You know. So um, I thought, okay, I'm not going to argue, but I'm going to spell out the situation to this person and see if they agree. I say, well, now, um, let me see if I understand rightly. You told me that I could pay cash and ran. Then you made a mistake. And now you're telling me that I need to figure out a solution to this problem because what you told me was wrong. They didn't catch the subtlety of what I was trying to do there. And they said, yeah, that's exactly right. Well, let me just do that for you. you know. Now, there's another option, right? I, I could have just walked away. Yeah, forget this. But I didn't want to see how the South African legal system worked from the inside, right? There was a debt that needed to be paid. You know, there's a time, there's a period where you and I are, are in debt to God, but the, the debt isn't being collected. But then there's a time when their debt is collected, and, and here, this is so crucial to understand. This is the word propitiation is so important to grasp. There's a time where the debt comes to be paid. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has paid the debt in full, completely, thoroughly, totally, the wrath of God has been completely turned away. The need that I have for cleansing from sin has been absolutely dealt with. There's, there's nothing remaining. There's, there's no remainder. There's no balance. I don't have to figure out, okay, I've got Christ's righteousness here and then a little bit of my own currency. Let's kind of figure out how to work this thing out, God. It's been completely dealt with. Now, here's why this is so important for you to understand. At that moment that you were confronted with the reality of your sin, there is a temptation that I face, a temptation that you face, and that temptation is, okay, how do I get things right with God again? What do I need to do to, to restore this relationship with God on my efforts? Maybe I need to, to do some nice things for people, or maybe I need to repent, and, and we define repentance in, not in terms of, of rightly asking for God's forgiveness, but, but doing some things so that God will look favorably on me again. Look, brothers and sisters, here's the thing we have to grasp as we're confronted with the reality of our sin. There is nothing else we can do to deal with it. We have no currency to offer God. There's, there's not, I can't say, well, okay, here's a little bit of Christ's righteousness, and here's some things I've done, God. Let's, 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 let's set up our account. The account has been completely, totally dealt with. And it has to be that way because I have nothing to offer him. This word propitiation is a hard word to say, hard word to spell, not something you use every, in everyday language, and yet it is incredibly theologically important for your everyday life for you to understand this word. God has thoroughly and completely and absolutely dealt with with your sin, what does this mean? It means I don't have to earn God's love. It means I can't earn God's love. It means I bring nothing to the table as I approach God. And yes, absolutely, if I find myself in sin and I've wronged someone, I need to apologize, ask for their forgiveness. I need to make restitution. I need to do all those things. But none of those things affect my standing before God. I need relationally to ask for God's forgiveness, of course, but none of those things deal with the sin itself in, in terms of, of, of making payment for it. When I'm confronted with the reality of sin in my life, 
first of all, I have to say, look, I, I, don't, I don't want this sin. This isn't who I want to be. And then I, I say, at the same time, because I've placed my faith in Christ, he's my advocate right now. And he has dealt with this sin in a way that I absolutely could not on my own. And here's the third thing. Here's the third thing that we need to meditate on when confronted with the reality of our sin. It's that there is a need for for me to tell others about the salvation found in Christ alone. Others need me to tell them about the salvation that is found in Christ alone. And let's look at this last little phrase that occurs here in the text. And this is a phrase that has caused commentators all sorts of problems over the centuries. Theologians, here's what it is. John writes, he's a propitiation for our sins, and then here's the phrase, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, there's a couple questions that I have when I read that phrase. One question is, who's the our there? Who's the world? And then the main question is, what's the point? Why did he include this little phrase here about not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world? What was he trying to tell me? So the first question, who is the hour there? I believe the answer to that is John and the people he's writing to. So he says, okay, guys, here in Asia Minor, as I, as I talk about Jesus Christ being the propitiation for our sins, and maybe it was even a largely Jewish audience, he's not, he's, he's, he's a propitiation for our sins. The hour means the people that John is writing to in himself. So the second question then is what is meant by the whole world? Now, let me, let me tell you this. Um, I'm going to answer this question differently today than perhaps I would have even three weeks ago in, in terms of, of how I, I would answer what the whole world there it is. Because at times, I think I would have said, well, the whole world there means uh, every single person who, who has ever been born. Time, place, location, wherever. And now I, I think something a little bit differently. Now I still believe that Christ's death has benefit. There, there, there's, there's some sort of benefit that the whole world gains from Christ's death. I mean, there's common grace, and, and I think it's, it's entirely appropriate as sharing the gospel to say that, that Christ has died for people. And, and so there's, I think that's, that's appropriate and, and biblical. There's other, fra- other passages that I could go to describe that. And yet in this passage... As I think about, we're talking about Christ's atonement here, his propitiation. There's, there's a couple things that, that lead me to say something different about the world. You see, when we're talking about Christ's death, there, there's, two, there's at least two things I think are important to keep in mind, especially with the atonement. The first thing is, is the intent, the intent. I believe that Christ had a special intent in his death to, to pay for the sins of, of the elect, of, of believers, of those who had ultimately, by God's grace, placed their faith in Jesus Christ. In John chapter 10, Jesus would say, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life, and then he would specify in a special way for the sheep. The good shepherd in a special way, Christ died in a special way for, for those who are believers. John 10, continuing verse 13 He's talking about the the hired hand flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. And but Jesus says, I'm not like a hired hand. I have a special love for my sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life in a special way for the sheep. And so there's an intent behind Christ's death in a special way to, to save the elect, to save those who've been predestined before the foundation of the world, to be saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. So there's an intent to the atonement. Secondly, there's, there's an effectiveness to Christ's death. And I, I think what really has kind of shaken me a little bit this past week is this word propitiation. You see, it's not like Christ kind of deals with God's wrath. 
when we say that Christ is the propitiation for our sins, that word is of such deep theological content. And it, it means that, that God's wrath has, has been successfully, completely turned away. God's wrath was going to be poured out, now it's turned, and my sin has been completely cleansed. And not, that, that can't be said for every single human being who's ever lived, right? Christ's death is effective in a special way for those who are believers. There's some other passages that use similar languages, that similar language that I think we could all agree don't apply to every single person ever born, but, but, in, but apply to believers. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, it says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, we don't believe that every single person, 1 Corinthians itself doesn't teach that every single person is going to go to heaven. There, there, 1 Corinthians 3 talks about loss and, and things like that. And so, we know that not every single person is going to be made alive in Christ, only, only the people who are believers, who believe in Jesus Christ. And so all doesn't mean every person who's ever lived. It means every person from every tribe, tongue, nation, every person in the world that God has called to be his children. Second Corinthians five fifteen. he died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And we know that not every single person is going to be made alive in Christ. It's that all there means every person from every tribe, tongue, nation. That's what Paul is using in, there in that sense to describe every person who places their faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? You say, well, okay, Daniel, why does any of this matter? You know? uh, you're being very intellectual. We don't want an intellectual pastor. Well, what, what's, what's the point? What does any of this mean? Here's what, it, here's what it means. Here's what the point is. It's revealing to us that this propitiation that we've been beneficiaries of, how you and I have been beneficiaries of Jesus Christ completely turning away God's wrath on us. In that moment that we're confronted with the reality of our sin, And understand that Christ has dealt completely with it. In that moment, there should also be a thought that I have a responsibility to share this truth with others. In that moment, that we recognize that, I, that we have received an incredible forgiveness from God the Father, there should be a, a simultaneous understanding, I need to tell others about this. This requires, I believe, not hypocrisy in our lives, but transparency. You see, hypocrisy isn't acknowledging that you're a sinner. Hypocrisy is seeing sin in your life and refusing to acknowledge it as such. And so, you know, even as I was thinking this morning about, and, and this last week, about teaching on this and seeing sin in my own life, I was like, you know, I can't pretend, just in honesty this week, I, don't, I can't pretend that I haven't struggled to respond rightly to this in my own life. I, I've got to be a little transparent this morning. That's why I started out the way that I did. The same, and, and why do I do that? Because I want people to see the forgiveness that I've received so that they will receive it as well. If you're a parent, for example, what do you, what do, you do as a parent? As a parent, one of the most effective things that your child can see in your life is not your hypocrisy, but you saying to your child, hey, dad is a sinner. Dad is a sinner, and you know what dad needs? Dad needs the gospel. God, dad needs God's forgiveness, and, and here's the forgiveness I've received, and, and will you please forgive me for how I've wronged you? You know, dad, I, I lost my temper with you. Will you please forgive me for doing that? And then that night, as you pray together with your family, your kid hears you ask God, God, will you please forgive me for how I spoke to my child today? And as people see how God has dealt with your sin, it shows them the hope they can have for their own. You encounter the coworker, and, and you tell your coworker, hey, you know what? Uh, what I did to you in the meeting, that wasn't a very professional thing to do. It wasn't right. I shouldn't have surprised you that way. I shouldn't have said that thing about you. Or I shouldn't have lost my cool. Or I shouldn't have done this. 
And as your coworkers see the way you respond to the gospel, what happens? You say, well, I need that as well. How do we receive God's forgiveness? We do it by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, who is what? The propitiation, the complete satisfaction for our sins. When we are confronted with the reality of our sin, we're not supposed to deny it. We're not supposed to pretend like it doesn't exist. We're not supposed to argue about it. No, that's not sin. What are we to do? We're saying, you know what, that, that is sin, and, and, and by God's grace, I know I don't want to sin. I don't want those things to be true of me. And, and, and then I realize I have an advocate, I have, I have a third party who's going before God the Father and saying, no, here's how we have extended our, our grace and our love to this person, and, and he's responded to the gospel. He believes in me. He's trusting in me. And, and as you look at him, you don't just pretend to, to not see the sin. You look at him through, Christ says to the Father, through my righteousness. And as you look at Daniel Bennett, you no longer see Daniel Bennett's sin, but you see Jesus Christ's righteousness, God the Son's righteousness, because Jesus says, I have completely, thoroughly, and absolutely dealt with Daniel's sin in a way that he absolutely could not. And now, and, and by the way, this is a key part of the process of moving on from sin. Now I turn my gaze outward. Not just wallowing in my sin, feel I'm so depressed about how bad of a person I am. Say, but I've received God's grace. I want to repent. I want to turn from the sin. And as I turn, I have an outward focus. How can I communicate the good news that I've received to others? Those three thoughts, I think, help us immensely as we rightly respond to the reality of sin in our life, a sin we could not deal with, but that Jesus Christ has dealt with absolutely. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you for the life that we have in his name, for his forgiveness, for your forgiveness through him. Lord, help us to live rightly in light of your truth, your mercy, your kindness to us. We pray this in your son Jesus' name and on the basis of his work on the cross. Amen.